Hi, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. In today's episode, we're speaking with two partners who focus on the role of the CEO. They and their colleagues recently published an article summarizing their work and experience on the mindsets and practices of the best CEOs. Carolyn Dewar is a senior partner in our San Francisco office and co-leads our global CEO and board excellence practice. Scott Keller is a senior partner in our Southern California office and co-leads the CEO and board excellence practice with Carolyn. Thank you both for joining us today. Let's start with a fundamental question. Scott, what exactly did you study and why? Thanks, John, and thanks for having us. By way of a little context, Carolyn and I, given our backgrounds, have had the great opportunity to attend some what we call leadership retreats. Those who are, say, five, three, couple years out from being a CEO attend these retreats to learn more information about trends that are happening in the world, also just to hear about what it's like to be a CEO. And they hear about that from people who are former or current CEOs who are very seasoned. And one time, Carolyn and I were attending a session, and there were multiple CEOs speaking. And the first night, the CEO was very clear and very crisp and and very directive, saying there there are three things that I need to do as a CEO that really are the things that make a difference. I need to set the vision, I need to drive execution, and I need to manage stakeholders. And then they spoke very eloquently about how they did that in their context. The next morning, another CEO, very successful, shared their view on what it takes to be a great CEO. And they said, look, three things you need to do as a CEO. You gotta tell the story, shape the culture, and put the right talent in place. And then they spoke very eloquently about how they had done that in their context. That night, another CEO spoke, and their three things were, I've gotta decide what businesses we're in, allocate resources, and create a high-performing team. And that, to me, is what is the essence of being a great CEO. And I remember Carolyn and I talking on the last day saying, you know, each CEO in and of themselves had a very compelling story. But when you looked across at their top three advice, it was a little hard to really distill down, hey, what does it take? And so we found one body of research that looks at traits of great CEOs. Things that come out of this research are things like be a great relationship builder, be resilient, be a risk taker, be decisive, execute well, be a good strategic thinker, forward think. These are the types of things that this body of research provides for CEOs and those looking to be CEOs. And while that's helpful, you know, our experience in counseling new CEOs in particular, but even CEOs who've been in the role for a while and are looking to be better, a lot of the traits of an individual are going to be wired, and a lot of those traits are going to be why you became CEO, but they're not as instructive for, well, what should I do to be excellent in the role? So we also found another body of research. The other body of research spoke to how CEOs spend their time, and one of the most recent and most popular of these was Noria and Michael Porter recently, and numerous findings came out of that. 72% of a CEO's time is spent in meetings. 70% of time is spent with employees. 75% of your time is scheduled in advance. And one of the big insights was CEOs felt like they spent a lot of time with customers, but in fact, they only spent about 3% of their time with customers, and that was a surprise. Other things the research said was that this is an all-encompassing role. 80% of your weekend days, you will do some work. 70% of your vacation days, you will do some work. It's a, it's a big job. So that's a lot of helpful information, too, for CEOs to know, hey, here's how time is generally spent. Now, what this didn't do, though, is it didn't really talk about the quality of that time spent. 
how effective is that time spent? And it also didn't differentiate, well, how do good CEOs or maybe not so good CEOs and great CEOs use that time differently? Very much the focus of our work was to endeavor to be additive to the body of research that's out there, all of the great stuff that's already available to help CEOs succeed in their role, but to be very clear on how is it that the the truly excellent CEOs think and what do they actually do as they go about the role of being a CEO. So how did you approach these questions and what, if any, empirical analyses did you conduct? So we've assembled what we believe to be the largest database of 7,800 CEOs that's been put together, really correlating between the performance of those CEOs, other attributes of their tenure, and some of the decisions they made during that tenure. We were able to track some companies over a 25-year period, so it's quite a longitudinal set of data through multiple CEOs, and what does that look like? It's also very intentionally global in nature, so we cover over 70 countries and cross-industry. So we tested to make sure that the insights were broadly applicable across industry, across geographies, across the tenure of a CEO. And we've, we've been diving in on a couple of dimensions. As Scott mentioned, there's folks who are a couple of years out who are preparing for the role. What did that look like? What does it look like as you're new in role the first year or two? It's more than 90 days, by the way. And then as you're in your mid-tenure, what is that next S-curve? So you've hit your stride as a CEO. You want to maintain and and expand momentum. What does that look like? And then towards the end of your tenure, how are you planning to pass over the reins, right? And what we found in the research is that excellent CEOs are actually playing six roles at once, and they're unique roles that only the CEO can play. And part of the art and science is understanding the unique piece of what the CEO needs to be doing against each of those dimensions. Okay, so the CEO role has six core aspects. Can you take us through them? I know the first one relates to corporate strategy. And in in many ways, that's not a surprise, right? For anyone who's gone to business school or been in leadership roles for a long time, that's the one that, that folks start with, we feel equipped with, too. Frankly, we have mature tools as, as a discipline of management science, right, on how do you set strategy. There's templates, there's ways of thinking about it. We're sort of schooled in that approach. And so for a lot of folks, that feels quite comfortable. And what that often looks like for a CEO who's maybe, you know, perfectly able, but sort of an average CEO in role, is, you know, to take the vision of the organization and the, the implicit sort of uh, performance metric of the organization, typically to be best in their industry and to win customer share, and to say, well, what are the strategic choices I'll make in my tenure in order to better advance that vision? So if we need to move from number three to number one in the market, which things are we going to do? What are we going to do to make that happen? And that feels pretty good as a CEO. Frankly, it, it is pretty good, and it's what we'd call kind of able, a, a very able CEO who's making those choices. For those who are truly distinctive or excellent, as measured by their performance and their tenure and role, the corporate strategy role they're playing is slightly different. And so the overall mindset that they have is that they really focus on beating the odds. And what do we mean by that? This theme of beating the odds is a theme throughout our strategy thinking. It's all around this notion of being very bold in the areas that matter most. And there were three practices or habits of really excellent CEOs that we've seen on this dimension. The first one, as it relates to vision, is really about reframing what it what winning means. And we've seen a few examples of that. There was one CEO we worked with where 
They were an industrials company, but they had always framed themselves as, hey, we're going to be the best in aerospace, right? It was sort of the piece of, of the pie that they were really working in. And when the new CEO came in, what they did is actually reframe and say, that's not the game we're playing. We're not trying to be the best in aerospace. We need to think bigger. We're going to be the best in terms of all industrials. And that really lit, you know, lifted the waterline of the peer set they were comparing themselves to, the aspiration, the boldness of what that could look like. It was amazing to see the organization rise to that new vision. The second piece is around bold moves. So if you've elevated that vision sufficiently, what really are the bold moves that you will make? It turns out that there's a discrete set of bold moves that matter most. And a lot of them are anchored in, you know, M&A, where are you going to play, what new markets are you going to enter. There's some organizational pieces there, too, around how are you going to fundamentally shift the DNA of the organization to look and feel different for your tenure. An anecdote from, from another Fortune 20 CEO that we talked to who felt like they had missed the boat in a huge wave that was coming through their industry. He said, look, I knew that that big wave was coming. But I didn't, I didn't make a move in my first year as CEO. I felt like I had to get the organization on board with my leadership first. Well, it turns out as a CEO, you really set the tone and the metabolic rate for your tenure in that first year. And so by the time the CEO, you know, in year two and three was trying to take their organization in a whole new direction, the organization wasn't willing to follow. They said, look, we know who you are. You're not that guy. That was not where we started off. And this last piece is quite a tactical one, which is the boldness with which you allocate resources. When you look at the research, it turns out most organizations, even if they set a bold vision and really clear strategic choices, they actually only tweak the budgets plus or minus what they were last year. Those who are really excellent take more of a clean sheet approach. And they say, wow, if I were to reallocate 10% or more of my budget each year and really pivot it towards what we're saying matters most, and that means making tough decisions and bold calls, what does that look like? It's quite a difference from what a typical CEO would do. So those are the types of things on the CEO's unique role on strategy that really jumped out at us. That's great. Your, your second CEO dimension is organizational alignment. What do you mean by that? Sure. Um, if you're a CEO and you've reframed what winning means, and as Carolyn mentioned, you know, the aerospace example, you, and you juxtapose that with the quote from Arthur Jones that says, You're, all organizations are perfectly designed to get the results that they get. And you say, if I'm trying to take this in a new place, well, my organization is perfectly designed to give me the results that I was getting before I made that call and decided on that vision and want to make these bold moves. There's no question you're going to have to change your organization. You're going to have to shape your organization. And leaders know I'm going to need to do things related to talent, culture, organization design. And, you know, good leaders, good CEOs, and quite frankly, when we first started thinking about this topic, our initial reaction was the following. On talent, you know, you've got to act on your lower performers and you've got to elevate your strong ones. And this, by the way, comes through from virtually every CEO we've ever talked to, every poll that's ever been done, every large survey, you know, Half of senior leaders' biggest regrets, you know, 50% of senior leaders will say their biggest regret is not moving on low performers fast enough. They knew it in their gut, and they just, for other reasons, wanted to wait. Turns out there's another level at which to think about talent. What we've seen with excellent CEOs is they, they think about that, but they also think about roles. And, in fact, they think more about roles and what are the roles in my organization that create the most value for the organization. 
or protect the most value for the organization. You know, in the first conversation with the CEO, say, hey, list your top 20 most talented people and list the top 20 roles that create the most value for your organization. And then we ask the question, you know, how many of those roles are filled with that top talent? And that's typically also a little bit of an awkward conversation because it's not as many as probably shareholders and the board would like. But what becomes even more fascinating in kind of the big mindset around organization that separates what we believe excellent looks like from, from what good looks like is this mindset that says, I'm going to put equal rigor and discipline in this realm of organization that I just put on corporate strategy or that I would put on any other more quantitative, operational, or strategic thing that I would do. Um, and what CEOs we've worked with have found is that when that is done, they realize their list, they missed about 50% of the roles. And the reason for that is only about 20% of the highest value-creating roles typically report to a CEO. About 60% are two levels down. About 10% are even lower down in the organization than that. And when you bank this up against a new strategy, a reframed vision, bold moves, resource reallocation, you find 10% of the roles on average don't even exist yet. And those might be roles related to data analytics. That's a very common thing. But it might be related to partnerships or it might be related to a shift that you're making so it's marketing talent. So putting rigor and discipline into, hey, what are the roles that create the most value? And you also end up being able to, to create a talent management engine for the roles that matter most, you know, the 2% of the roles in the company, where you can build very robust pipelines. So how does culture fit into this process of aligning talent with the organizational priorities? Um, a lot of CEOs will look and they'll say, hey, we need to, if they don't have it, they'll put in place an employee satisfaction or employee engagement survey. And they have that survey largely because they have heard a true story, which is the story that says employee engagement is correlated to business performance. That's absolutely true. Unfortunately, that's the equivalent of saying, hey, if you weigh yourself every day on the scale and you're between this range of, of weight for your height, you'll be healthy. There is a correlation between weight and health, but it so happens that that scale won't tell you if you have high blood pressure. It won't tell you if you have diabetes. It won't tell you if you have early cancer. It's why you go get an annual physical. And so CEOs, using that same analogy, they go beyond engagement. It's things around how the company innovates. It's how much role clarity there is. It's how externally oriented they are. number of things like that that engagement surveys don't pick up. So great CEOs tend to look broadly at what we call it organizational health, but all of the lever, all of the dimensions that are the soft dimensions that correlate to business performance, they measure that. They manage that, and when you manage the, the full set, not just employee engagement, but the full set of, of elements that go into shaping a culture, factually you have more than twice the likelihood that your strategy will be executed. You also, over time, will have three times the total return of shareholders that other companies who aren't tending the full set of elements have. There's a very clear set of levers that can be used in a very programmatic way to shape culture. It's role modeling storytelling. It's the formal systems that you have at your disposal, so that's incentives, structure, process, and system. And it's the capability and skills that you give your employees. And when you use those levers in a very methodical way to shift your culture on the dimensions that matter, you see very different results than the typical engagement survey, which would push things back into the organization and say, hey, create your own plan in every individual area. Got it. 
Um, now, in terms of organizational design, is there something excellent CEOs do that others don't? On organization design, they'll know that, you know, being clear on what is the organization structure that we need to take us forward and getting clear on roles within that structure. Key thing we see leaders do is they're very explicit on not just what is the stable part of my organization, meaning what's our primary access. Our, you know, we have geographies, we have products. It might be a few signature processes. We all have the same talent management process. We all have the same risk management process. It could be a set of shared values that they're driving, but they're very clear on these are the things that are expected that we as an organization, are, we hold stable. It's part of our, um, part of the DNA of who we are, no matter where you are in the organization. And they're equally specific about here's where we want to drive speed or agility. And that means here's where we're going to have, you know, flow-to-work models for temporary performance cells to be driving work, where we do minimum viable product type iterations, where we might section off parts of the organization, the cocoon growth initiatives. And it's incredible how often that isn't made clear from the top. And therefore, people kind of make up their own versions and they tend to be at war with each other deeper in the organization. So another of the six dimensions is team and processes. How do those differ from your points about roles and culture and organizational design? Um, you know, we all know this is important. Teamwork makes the dream work. Uh, we've all heard that. Most people nod their heads. People who have high-performing teams are 1.9 times as successful from a financial performance standpoint. The facts are all there. The facts are also there. This is hard, though, so be warned. This can feel easy, but it's hard. You know, more than 50% of team members on top teams feel like their team is ineffective, and yet CEOs, you know, less than a third feel like they lead ineffective teams, and so there can be a real mismatch here between the leader's view, your view, and your team's view. So what we see CEOs doing to kind of break through that, the mindset is putting dynamics ahead of mechanics. The mechanical view of teamwork would be to say, hey, I need a good operating rhythm and set of team norms, and we just need to drive that. The mechanical view of decision-making would be we need to consider multiple scenarios and then pick a no-regret move amidst those scenarios or be clear where we're taking big bets. A mechanical view of management processes would be, look, I need to make sure each of my management processes work well and I've got someone accountable for driving them, whether that's budgeting, whether it's long-term strategy, whether it's performance management, whether it's IT prioritization, et cetera. That's more the mechanical view. That's good, by the way. The dynamic view would say, I am regularly going to gut check the composition of my team to make sure it's the right talent. I'm going to also separately very clearly show resolve in terms of how close I get to my team members. This is an interesting differentiator where CEOs need to maintain enough distance to be objective and yet enough closeness to gain trust and loyalty with team members. And that's not an easy thing to do, showing real resolve to get that relationship right on the team with each team member is very important. And then the team dynamics themselves, Admiral Eric Olson, who was an admiral in the Navy, and he also led the Special Operations Command for the U.S. Armed Forces, he has a quote he often shares, and it basically says this. It says, leadership is what you tolerate in your presence. And what we find great CEOs do when it comes to team dynamics is they don't tolerate people putting other interests ahead of the company needs. They don't tolerate discussions being theater rather than substance. They don't tolerate having the meeting outside of the room, and they don't tolerate backsliding on decisions or disrespect for one another. Then it makes a big difference in terms of the dynamics that you'll have on a team. 
Well, let's talk about processes. How should CEOs approach their decision-making processes and management? Um, there's a number of biases that creep in. So if you're just using scenarios to make sure your decisions are robust, there's a number of other techniques to, to work against confirmation biases, social biases, optimism biases, all these things that just naturally are part of the human, human nature. And then on management processes, what can often happen is you have situations where the strategy process will emphasize, you know, stretch targets, and the budgeting process will emphasize stretch targets. And then at the end of the year, the performance management process, which is separate, will actually penalize people for not hitting their stretch targets. Or you have situations where you have an agile product development kind of methodology being applied in one area, but you've got an, a very old archaic uh, technology queue that's more one-size-fits-all in another area, and so they work at odds with one another. Um, or your risk management processes uh, slow things down that otherwise are meant to be part of the agile part of your organization. So the, the punchline here for CEOs is think about do all these things work together in a system? Because as uh, W. Edwards Deming mentioned, you know, a, a bad system will beat a good person every time. Indeed. One of the key responsibilities that many incoming CEOs will not have had much experience in is in dealing with their board. How do the best new CEOs approach this? Absolutely. It's interesting because the good CEOs, you know, when they think about board, we hear two things, right? One is, well, it actually takes up a lot more time than I was expecting. The other piece we hear from sort of good or average CEOs is they're quite focused on having good board meetings themselves. And so making sure the meeting goes well, that it has the right agenda, and that they're able to sort of push through and continue with their vision without too much interference from the board, to be sort of perfectly frank. When we think about excellent CEOs, the mindset is quite different, but it is linked to this notion of how do you help the directors themselves, the individual board members, and as a collective, help the business and help you as the CEO? And there's a number of, of dimensions driving that, right? One is, you know, just the boards themselves are being asked to play an increasingly active role by the markets and by the public. And so boards are in a, a transition period right now where they are grappling with what is their role, what is the degree to which they should be involved in the business or not. As a CEO, you can help to shape that thinking, right? You can actually promote a really forward-looking agenda and help focus the board on the most forward-looking items where, frankly, you could use their input, you could use their expertise as we look towards the future. From a relationship point of view, they think well beyond the meeting. So the board meeting, to be honest, is sort of, if you wait till that point to, to engage folks, you've kind of missed it, right? And, and I think CEOs are often surprised both the value and the importance of engaging with individual board members. That board chair is a crucial ally of yours, a crucial person for you to build a deep relationship with. But frankly, so are each of the individual board members, especially as a new CEO, meeting with them one-on-one, -on -one, understanding what their agenda is, what keeps them up at night, what the types of questions are that they think about. Not just that you can accept that as your to-do list, but so that you have that information and you know what is likely to come up. So really thinking about an active role there. And that evolves through your tenure until we get to this third piece around the capabilities of the board itself. One is the composition of the board itself. To the extent that you're setting a new vision and a set of strategic priorities, 
What are the types of skills and attributes and experience you need of your board members? And is that represented on your board? Do you have the global reach that you need? Do you have someone or multiple folks who have scaled a business at the same inflection point that you are at? Is this the board for the go-forward company, or is this the board for the company that has it's been in the past? And even if the same folks stay on the board, how do you bring them along? How do you build those capabilities? What are the kinds of learning sessions you have for the board, both on content as well as the decision-making that you need from them? How will you work with the chair and the board themselves to get them up to speed on some of the digital transformations, some of the agile transformations, some of these, these newer and important things, journeys that companies are going on, and what does that look like? Got it. Thanks. CEOs also spend a lot of time dealing with external stakeholders, which is increasingly critical these days. What kind of external stakeholder issues do CEOs most commonly need to tackle? Yeah, there's two pieces really in this. One is we we talk about social purpose. There's been a huge shift in this even in the last couple of years where it used to be corporate social responsibility was something you could park on the side. Increasingly, that no longer works, nor is, is the relevant way to think about social purpose. And excellent CEOs are integrating the social purpose of their company inextricably with the core business competencies that they have. What does it look like for your company not to write a big check and hand it over in a ceremony, but what is it the confidence that your company has and how will it use it both to drive the bottom line as well as be quite articulate about why this organization exists in the world and how it can really advance you know, social, social um, good and, and advancement as well and thinking broadly about that. In terms of the broader set of stakeholders, investors, media, regulators, all of those things, how do you take a nuanced stakeholder view across all of those and as a CEO have a clear view of which ones you deferentially need to spend time on, what's the role you need to play in those versus those that you can rely on your partners for? Thank you. Um, So we're at the sixth dimension now, which is the most individual one, but vital to all the others. It's how CEOs organize both their time and their energy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, CEOs who have, we've worked with, particularly the more seasoned CEOs who are more towards the end of their tenure, they will often point to this as, you know, actually you should start here because if you don't get this right, everything kind of falls apart. In fact, you know, Steve Tappan about 10 years ago wrote a book called The Secrets of CEOs and some of the headlines like 50% of CEOs feel incredibly lonely just the amount of frustration, disappointment, irritation, exhaustion that can come with the role, being a CEO should come with a health warning. And it is this personal working norms that helps you ensure that you can kind of handle the stress and handle the irritation and move beyond the exhaustion. You know, good looks like staying organized and efficient. Great is more about doing what only you can do. And what that means is having an office that doesn't just help manage your time, but also manages your energy. Everyone has a unique set of things that give them energy and things that deplete their energy and being self-aware of what that is and then building your days and having your office build your days and weeks such that you avoid what in the work um, Tony Schwartz does around energy, which is kind of very famous in terms of energy management, to avoid what he calls energy troughs, you know, that cascading set of meetings that take you down to that really exhausted place that mean you're going to be short with people, you're going to be on edge. Instead, putting something in the middle of that, you know, lunch with a frontline employee, a meeting on that with a customer, things, you know, kind of to, to break up that energy and not get into an energy trough. Got it. So it, it's really important not only to think about how you're focusing your time, 
but almost how you're sequencing it and and making sure that the things that you really enjoy um, that give you energy uh, are there in your schedule to sort of give you that boost during the day. So do you have any advice on how the people who support CEOs can help them do that? Um, not just on this last dimension, but on all six. And have you seen any CEOs organize their executive team around the six mindsets and practices to help them be more effective? It, it is a lot. And I think the key is, as you're supporting a CEO, how do you think about what is the unique role that only the CEO can play? And how do you help remove any clutter that's getting in the way of that, right? If there's things that others can be doing, let's make sure they're doing it so that the highest and best use time of that CEO is really focused, you know, for example, even on stakeholders, right? Which are the couple of the handful of investors that's important for them to relate to or the handful of of external regulators and things? What does that look like? And that can be supported organizationally, as you said. Strategy, there's obviously, you know, typically an owner there. Organization, you know, that's about elevating the CHRO into a truly strategic role, making sure you have the right person in role to play that strategic thought partner as opposed to just sort of a, a practical role. Even on external stakeholders, both Scott and I have seen a couple of CEOs create a, a stakeholder relations role, which is whether it's a formal role or it's a first among equals person who convenes investor relations, government relations, CSR, a person from, from HR looking at team member relations, a person from marketing. How does that group self-organize and bubble up, both coordinate amongst themselves and bubble up what is truly important that only the CEO needs to pay attention to? across that stakeholder group, that's one we've seen be quite effective but isn't typical. The same on team and process, right? Who is it who will look across strategic planning, budgeting, the ITQ, workforce strategy, all of these big management processes and make sure they're interlocked and that the right interdependencies and things and handoffs are happening. That's another role I've seen created. Thank you. Um, So let's switch gears. Uh, What really makes for a great leader versus a good leader for an organization? You know, good looks like being the leader the organization needs you to be. Great leaders tend to move beyond that, and they find a way to be authentically themselves while still delivering on that which the organization needs them to be. You know, this is something where understanding the legacy you want to leave, understanding what you stand for, making that clear to people is part of the reasons why you're making the decisions you're making it not only has the effect of you're being your full self at work, and that's enabling you to kind of have more energy yourself, um, more resilience, more durability, so to speak, but it's also helping people understand the why of what you do so that a lot of the rumors or otherwise kind of rampant guesswork that can happen in relation to CEOs is kept to a minimum. Choosing authenticity in your leadership model is part of, of, of mitigating that. So... CEO positions also entail a lot of power, which can sometimes lead to big egos and even hubris. Any advice on how the best CEOs stay grounded? Uh, There's fascinating research out there that the more senior you get, the more you lose the ability to even understand when people are kind of giving you a fake laugh. You know, the boss tells a joke and everyone laughs, and it's just, it's very easy especially when you have early success, to get into a place where you start to feel a bit invincible, you tune out the critics. And so what we've seen excellent CEOs do is they they build in ways to kind of, they stay hungry, but they stay humble. And they stay humble because they take time to get out with the rank and file. They have an inner circle that is an inner circle built to kind of feed them just the truth. 
you know, keep them, keep them honest, keep up their feet on the ground. And they also have a, a wonderful way of building into their, their lives kind of things that remind them that the CEO role isn't forever. They're still going to be a human being afterwards with many, many more years uh, that where they're not CEO. And staying true to who do I want to be um, as I prepare for that life as well is, is quite an important way to guard against hubris also. Carolyn, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Absolutely. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. It's been a privilege being here. Appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners for joining us inside the Strategy Room. A transcript of today's podcast will be posted on McKinsey.com under the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page, where you can also find links to our previous sessions. If you'd like to receive our latest insights, sign up for email updates on our website, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, and connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page there. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon on our next episode of Inside the Strategy Room.